You're listening to the Vineyard Community Church Podcast with Pastor Rick Francis. For more information, visit vccmountcomfort.org. I've read a, a, a book in the last couple weeks that has just really rocked my world. It's entitled The Cure. John Lynch is, is the author. Um, anybody read The Cure by John Lynch? I wasn't familiar with it, so it was kind of new, yet I think I'd read some articles in which the metaphor that he uses was used in, and, and I, was, I was tracking along with that. Uh, it was so, so amazing that I went out and, with my wife's permission, well, I kind of notified her, uh, I bought 10 copies, and, and uh, they should be arriving. I was hoping they'd be here before today, but they should be coming in. For all of you that like to write, uh, like to read on uh, electronic devices, Kindles, iPads, whatever, I highly recommend it. Uh, I'm going to be trying to sh- share some gleanings, but to get us started, I need us to, to kind of get the, the metaphor story. And so I know that you're thinking, I wish Papa Rick would just read us a little bedtime story today. The Cure talking about how we see God is going to tell us a lot about how we see ourselves. And how we perceive ourselves is going to have a direct effect on how we relate to God, what our view of God is. And so we see, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Well, it's one of those things that is almost seamless as we go on. So here's how the the metaphor goes. I don't even notice at first, but suddenly the 10 feet in front of me are going different ways. And I realize I have no idea which way to go. I'm staring at the intersection like this could make it go away. That's when I notice the tall pole with two arrows at the top pointing down each fork. What's written on them is even more confusing than the fork. One arrow, pointing left, reads, Pleasing God. The one leading to the right reads, Trusting God. You're kidding. I'm supposed to choose between those two? I'm not doing that. Choosing one means not choosing the other. It's like being asked to choose between your heart and lungs. What I want is a bypass, but there is no bypass. I look up at the trusting God sign. This has to be a trap, a trick question. It sounds good, but it doesn't give me anything to do. It's too passive. How will I make a difference If God and I are going to be in sync, there's got to be something more than trust. If the issue is me, I'm probably not going to figure out my destiny simply by trusting that God can be trusted. I move over to the pleasing God sign. Pointing down the path to the left, this has to be it. After all he's done for me, the very least I can do is please him. So I set off on the path of pleasing God, shaded by towering oaks. 
I'm encouraged to see this path is well-traveled, beat level with the feet of a million travelers. Many of them, in fact, are still on the path. The first group I pass is a trio of buskers. Do you know what a busker is? I don't either. Street musicians, the guys playing guitars and singing on the corner with their hat ready for you to put a dollar in or whatever. Mm -hmm. Strumming guitars and a mandolin. We nod to each other politely. A little while on, there's a family of five camping just 30 yards off the path next to the brook. Even further, a middle-aged couple basks in the sun by the side of the road. Hello, I wave. Will I see you later on? Nope. The man is smiling but firm. We left the room of good intentions some time ago. We can't see going back. Okay, I responded, confused, not sure what the room of good intentions is. But not everyone wants to please God, I guess. After a long while, passing many more travelers by the wayside, I see a giant building looming in the distance. It looks like a hotel. As I get closer, I can see there's writing in bronze letters across the front. Striving hard to be all God wants me to be. Finally, something for me to do. I strive after success in my career. I strive after keeping fit. Why would it be any less with God? I draw closer and notice a door. Above the doorknob, a small ornate plaque is bolted to the heavy wooden door. Self-effort, it reads. Of course, God does his part and I do mine. It's about time someone said it. I turn the handle and walk in. I'm stunned to find a huge open room filled with thousands of people. I scan the group trying to take it all in. So these are the people really living for Jesus. Soon I notice there's a woman, a hostess maybe, standing next to me. She's immaculately groomed. Every hair is perfectly in place. Her makeup accentuating her features. Her smile is wide and toothy. Nothing about her seems out of place. Welcome to the room of good intentions. She says it clean and cool, like she's been greeting people all her life. There's just the tiniest little shred about it that's unsettling. But I'm so excited to finally be here, I don't think much of it. You have no idea how long I've waited to find this place. I return her smile, grasping her primly outstretched hand. I called out to the crowd almost involuntarily. Hey, how's everyone? The room goes silent. It's full of beautiful people, smiling people. Some of them wear elaborately crafted masks, which is great because I love masquerades. This looks like my kind of place. One man steps forward, his smile like the hostess is broad. His bleached white teeth look as if they had been lined up by a ruler. Welcome, he begins shaking my hand firmly. We're fine, 
Thank you for asking. Just fine. Aren't we everyone? A few in the crowd behind him smile along. My kids are doing great, and mm, I'm about to close some very lucrative deals at work. More fit than when I was in high school, I'm telling you. I'm doing just fine. Everyone here is. Before I can reflect on how strange that sounded, the hostess asked how I'm doing. Me? Well, to be honest, I've been struggling with some stuff. That's partly why I'm here. I'm trying to figure out, shh. She interrupts me, putting a flawlessly manicured index finger to her lips. She reaches behind a podium and pulls out a mask, handing it to me. She nods her head with a curt smile, indicating I should put it on. I stare at it for a moment. Others in the room are excited, excitedly motioning for me to do so. Slowly, I slide the mask over my face. My next thought is, it might be best to back off the self-revelation stuff. I find myself answering as if someone were far away. You know, I'm great. I'm great. I'm doing fine. And everyone in the room smiles before returning to their conversations. The main entrance hall is a massive, massive and ornate. Winding stairways lead to upper levels where cascading fountains are ringed with the beautiful upholstered sofas and chairs. There are doorways leading to ballrooms, dining halls, and fancily appointed living quarters. Everything is white marble and gold leaf. It's gorgeous. Across the back wall, there's a huge embroidered banner working on my sin to achieve an intimate relationship with God. Number three, Sue. <laughs> mm -hmm. Wow. Finally, someone is saying what I've experienced all these years. Early on, when I first believed, he and I were so close. Then over time, I kept failing. I'd do something stupid. I'd promise I wouldn't do it anymore. Then I'd fail at the same thing again. Before long, it felt like he was on the other side of an ever and growing pile of garbage I'd created. I imagined him further away each day with his arms folded, shaking his head, thinking, I had so much hope for this kid, but he's let me down so many times. But looking across this room, I know now I can change all of that. This room, it's impressive. The decorations are nice enough, but you can feel the courage and diligence. You can almost taste the heart, the full-hearted fervency, the accomplishment, the head-on determination. There's a Fortune 500 executive who has given away 90% of his wealth to charity. There is the lead pastor of a thriving work of churches, a dynamic communicator whose theological insights are heard over the world. I meet a girl, elegant, even in her simple worn clothes, who has, devotedly, who has devoted nearly all her energy to providing medical supplies to the untouchables in Calcutta. So many good-hearted people fill this room. 
They have devoted themselves to God, to studying his character, to pouring themselves into spreading his word, to serving humanity in the name of Jesus. This must be it. Soon God and I will be close again. Weeks run into months in this room and a slight unease starts to seep in. It gets stronger day by day, but I can't put my finger on it at first. I'm noticing many in here talk in a sort of semi-joking, put-down banter. It's familiar, but a bit off. And standing, and standing this long on the edges of insider conversations, I realize I never notice how annoying or obvious the subtle bragging sounds. Even through those elaborate masks, I'm, su- I'm struck with how tired everyone looks. Many conversations are superficial and guarded. Many times I've caught the real faces of people with masks removed when they thought no one was looking. There's a deep, lonely pain in their expressions. I'm starting to think differently too. The comfort I felt when I got here is fading. I'm carrying this tension, like if I don't measure up, I'll be shunned. And, oh, with God too. There's another thing. Despite all my passionate sincerity, I keep sinning. Then I get fixated on trying not to sin. Then it all repeats. Same sin, same thoughts, same failure. I spend more time alone now. It's hard to be in public very long before my mask starts to itch fiercely. I spend more time preparing to be with people than I actually spend being with people. I can't seem to do enough to make these people, or God for that matter, happy. Increasingly, the path to pleasing God seems to be about how I can keep God pleased with me. One day it dawns on me what I've been doing to myself and to everyone around me. I've been trying to meet some lofty expectation primarily to gain acceptance from people. I don't even know why I'm performing for them. To satisfy a God I'm not sure I can ever please? Even worse... I expect everyone around me to do the same. (laughs) And so that begins part one of the cure. The simple formula that we see for godliness is that more right behavior plus less wrong behavior equals godliness. There we go. And I don't know how many times we get sucked into that. And, and we think, well, I got to try harder. I got to do a little better on, on my sin so that uh, I'll be more acceptable either at church or in community or with God. Yeah. As it goes on, we find out that we can never resolve our sin by working on it. As soon as we make fixing our sin the focal point, the more we're trapped in it. Because now we're trying to please rather than to trust. Hmm.
We see in Scripture that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That we have a new nature. That when we become born again through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's through our faith, it's through putting our trust in what he has done, dying upon the cross, shedding his blood, laying his life down for me, for us. And by trusting in that, we are birthed, born again, we're birthed into a new reality. We're birthed into a new nature. The old is gone, the new has come. Yet oftentimes, it, it, it's amazing how when we experience that, and as, as the, the young man talks about in, in the allegory, that he knew that when he first came to the Lord Jesus and how close they were, but then when he didn't quite perform the way he thought he should, he starts striving and stopped trusting. And now our trust and our energy is not in appropriating the relationship with the Lord Jesus and in gratitude and thanksgiving for what he's done for us. Now it's in trying to figure out how I can move ahead. How can I advance? How can I deal with my sinful behavior? Hmm. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Anybody ever been hanging out in the room of good intentions? It's like, oh my, I spent most of my Christian life in the room of good intentions, trying to look good for everyone else so I'll be more acceptable to God, so that I'll be more acceptable to people, so that I'll be more acceptable to God, so I'll be more acceptable to people, and pretty soon I don't even know who I am because we get behind so many different religious masks. Uh Uh-huh. The second thing is we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. Mm. So wonderful. He's able to correct. He's able to heal. He's able to rebuke. He's able to counsel. He's able to guide us. We have God with us. Yeah. When our primary motive becomes trusting God. However, we suddenly discover there's nothing in the world that pleases him more than trusting him. Until you trust God, nothing you do will please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so we try to please God, but we try to do it without trusting him, without placing our faith in him. And it's right there that it all, it all hits the fan. It's like, okay, trusting God is the, is the way to go. We don't like it because it, it, it feels too passive. We like to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We like to pay our own way. We like to be responsible. We like to do. And it's like, oh, we trust him. We bring pleasure to him. He shares more and more in building that intimate relationship with him. And from there, we get the journey with him. There'll be plenty to do, but it's not because I'm trying to earn love or I'm trying to earn acceptance or I'm trying to earn some standard of acceptance in his holy sight, but it's because I'm with him.
his righteousness has now been (laughs) moved into my account. His righteousness is real and it makes a difference. We we realize that as, as, as we continue to try to live in the room of good intentions, that we, we, get, we get critical. We become proud. We find out why someone is less acceptable than we are. And we find that there's no healing. There's no really progress when no one matures in bitterness. No one gets free in isolation. No one heals rehashing the testimonies of bad religion. And no one gets to love or be loved very well when they're living in self-protection. Hmm. Yeah. This is a message that the Holy Spirit's been bringing to me from so many different ways. And while we were at the conference, I heard it over and over and over again. Every book, everything I'm reading in Scripture, every uh, devotional that I have is, is, is bringing to, to bear the, the importance of the reality that we've got to know our identity. And we don't define ourselves. We are defined by who our Father, who our Creator tells us we are. And the price that he's willing to pay reveals the significance of the value and the worth that we have. And so as, as, we, as we begin to get our identity, it's, it's like we move out of the room of good intentions and we go on to the path of trusting God. And as we're trusting God, we move into the room of grace. I won't read the story, but it's really interesting. As the guy goes into the room of grace, it looks just like the room of good intentions, but it's not quite as flashy. It doesn't have all the gold ornate stuff, but it's still beautiful and it's still huge and it's still amazing. And he goes there and as he's, as he's looking around, because he's fed up with all that he's been in, in, in the room of good intentions, as he comes into this room, here comes someone just like the lady at the room of good intentions and asks him how he's doing. And he's fed up. He's not going to put on the mask and he's not going to say, oh, I'm fine. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a hot button, the word fine. Something that happened early, early in my life. I can't stand to hear the word fine because it means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. And it's like, ah. Oh. So he blows off. He just blows up right there. He says, well, I'm struggling. I'm not doing very good. And he just, he's just saying it like it is. This is who I am. I am so fed up with trying to please God. And I can't, and he, and he, after he does all that, he's figured, well, I just worn out my welcome here. So I might as well leave. So he turns to exit. And this loudmouth guy says, is that all you got? And he's shocked and he turns back and he, he tries to figure out what's going on. What do you mean? Is that all? He says, 
I had to file bankruptcy. My finances are terrible. I, my kids are doing it. And he just goes on and, he, and he's, he's just letting. And now the guy realizes, oh, this room, there's a, different, there's a different way in which people relate to one another here. In this room, you're allowed to be honest with what's going on with you. Some are doing better than others, but that's okay. There's full acceptance for everyone. And it doesn't matter how bad it is, you're still loved. Graham Cook puts it this way. On your worst day, you can never, ever fall below a much-loved son of God, a much-loved daughter of God. That's as low as you can ever get after you've come to Christ. On your worst, most horrible day, you're still a much-loved son, a much-loved daughter. I love, I love the room of grace. Isn't it wonderful? There, there's no hiding. You don't have to hide your sin. You don't have to hide anything. Everything is allowed to come and to be exposed. And from there, you can deal with it. The, the analogy is that, you know, we, I shared this a couple of weeks ago, that our sin, we've all been trained in evangelical Christianity that our sin separates us from God. And as, as this guy's talking about, he, he sees his, his sin as this heap of garbage. And Jesus is on the other side. God's on the other side. But in the room of grace, you realize you don't have to hide your sin. Good intentions, you've got to hide your sins. You've got to present yourself better than you are. Here, you don't have to hide your sin because Jesus isn't separated from you because you've received his forgiveness. He's now with you. And together, he will lead you in dealing and working through and processing. See, this is, this is the, the crazy thing, because a lot of times in, in our understanding of Christianity, it's like when I got born again, it's like everything's so radically new and everything's so wonderful that we think, man, this is, this is it. This is the way it's always going to be. But we're birthed. We still got to mature. And because we're not fully mature at the moment of our birth, the enemy whispers in, you better try harder. You're not measuring up. And as that lie comes and takes place, and as we've already experienced in, in this world, that performance is always rewarded and, and passivity is not, so we, we begin to integrate more and more of a work's performance in our relationship with God rather than in trusting. Now, the crazy thing is, how many has ever come into the room of grace where you can just be fully known, fully loved? This is, this is the whole thing because we're all created to be loved, but it's hard to be loved when you can't be you. When you're over in the room of good intentions, you got to keep your mask on and you got to keep striving and performing. And the object of everyone's love and our perception of God's love isn't us. It's who we're trying to pretend to be. But over in the room of grace, as, as we're living in humility and as we have no delusions of having arrived, as we, as we take in the grace just trusting him. 
I don't know how he's going to, I don't know how he's going to tackle this problem, but I, I trust that he knows. I know he's good. I know he has all power and authority. And I know he knows how to get through this stuff. And so I just trust him. I just trust him. And out of that, I build relationship. And out of that relationship, he brings guidance. Out of that, he shows me things that I didn't know. He puts stuff in me that I needed that I never got. He takes stuff out that I don't need anymore. And he starts to rewire how I think and how I feel and what's true. And as that begins to happen, we don't focus on sin. We focus on him. That's why Paul constantly says, fix your eyes on things above. Set your heart on things above. Fix your eyes on Christ. Because it's as we fix our eyes on him and we understand heaven, then we understand as it is on earth, as it is in heaven. And so we get a, we get a, we get to begin to get some kind of conception of how relationships, how life, how things are supposed to work down here. And so we can begin to move and to progress in that direction. I love this. I think it's so good. A couple quotes that I took from the book. It says, uh, they're trusting who God says they are. This is in the room of grace. Instead of adding up their behaviors to prove their godliness. They're convinced they can never resolve their sin by working on it. They know that their sin is never between God and them. It does not separate. They live in the truth that there are no, quote, together people. They live careful and carefree because they realize their father is crazy about them on their worst day. They too must learn to rest in the sufficiency of Christ in them. If they stop trusting these stunning truths, they'll soon return to the familiar and go back into the room of good intentions. Oh, don't we hate it when we do that? We get a breakthrough and we experience his grace and we just let it wash over us and it feels like the greatest thing we've ever, ever known. Many of us think, oh, I wasn't saved back then because what I'm experiencing now in this rededication or this breakthrough with God, now I'm really saved. And so we get really saved and really saved and really saved and really saved and we keep getting really saved. We don't understand that we are really saved. We're maturing. We're maturing. But it feels like every time we go back to the room of good intentions, we take it upon ourselves for righteousness. Hmm. And pretty soon we'll, we'll get sick of that. The guy, in our, the guy in the story, he goes back one night after he's been in the, in the room of grace for a long time, he finds that he's just drawn to go back to the room of good intentions. And he doesn't know why he's being drawn, but he, he finds himself right at the door and his loudmouth friend that said, is that all you got? 
right as he starts to enter the door, he says, hey, what are you doing? (laughs) Thinking about going in the room of good intentions? Yeah, I've done that too. Once again, no shame. No shame in the room of grace. Yeah, I've, I've made that mistake too. We, we all try to go back to the room of good intentions. But do, do you really want to do that? Let's go for a walk. And, and they, go, they go for a walk. And so he's learned that he went back to the room of good intentions and he kept an eye on his friend and he saw him sneaking out one night and he followed him. And he kept him from going back in. And they went off and they talked. And it's like, oh, Jesus, thank you for all the people that have been used of you to keep me from going back into the room of good intentions. Because it seems like in, in our human attempt to do religion, that when we, even in Christianity, have this incredible breakthrough of salvation in Christ, we still somehow feel like something's got, and it kind of pulls us back. It's like, no, we've got to learn. We've got to learn how to stay in the room of grace and live from there all our lives. Those that were at the conference, you know, were describing chair number one and chair number two. You know, this is Chair number one is, is the room of grace. It's the place where we sit and we, we experience God and we experience his love and we know that we're sons and daughters and we just know how wonderful he is and we just trust and love and, and just sit here and rest in him. And rest isn't always passive, but it's a, it's a state of being. We rest. <laughs> but uh, left put up chair number two. And this is, I'm saved in chair number two. I've asked Jesus to forgive me, but somehow I'm still competing. There's something that I've got to do. There's something that I must do, you know. Or all of a sudden, I forget that I'm a son. I'm a servant. I got to work. I got I to perform. I've got to do something. I've got to earn something. I've got to show everybody that I'm really a value that I've got worth, that I'm significant. And so I work real hard from chair number two. Over here in chair number one, competition is out. I know that I'm accepted in the beloved. I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Oh, I love that. I love that. Until we get to the place where we're in chair number one, where we're living from the room of grace, where we understand that we're a much-loved son or daughter, that we're there with Christ in the heavenlies, we'll constantly be coming back to the room of good intentions. We'll constantly come to chair number two. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to burn chair number two. I hate chair number two. Chair number two puts so many guilt trips and so much shame, puts so much condemnation, makes us always feel like we're never enough. When we've been called to know the Lord and to live in the room of grace. Mm. 
Let's stand together. That's what happens when I come back from a conference. I don't care about the time. <laughs> Sorry about that. Mm-hmm. So, Father, we just want to receive your love afresh today. Father, for all the times that we've, we've snuck off and entered back into the room of performance, the room of good intentions, when, when fear or fatigue has hit us to the place that now we're trying to measure up by our own efforts, I thank you that you always, always love us and call us back to the room of grace. Father, it's there that we found you. It wasn't by works. No man can boast. It was the free gift. It was through faith, through trust, that you release your wonderful saving grace to us. And so we say, Lord, we want to live there. I pray against the enemy's ability to make us feel like we're, we're kindergartners, and that if we really want to get our PhD in Christianity, we need to go over and start doing. I pray, Father, that we would be childlike and be able to rest in your presence and in knowing you. And then follow you as you open up doors for learning, for education, for uh, growing in different areas. We want to place our trust solely in you today. And we ask for forgiveness for every time that we try to trust and place our, our faith in ourselves or within a religious system that we have to jump through hoops. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus has gone through the hoop once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And so, Lord, I pray that there would be a grace as we come into the room of grace to no longer consider ourselves from all the different programs that run inside us, how in our emotions and our minds, those things that come from the outside, from the world and from the kingdom of darkness that try to identify us, try to define us. I pray, Lord, that we would find our identity in what you have said is true about us. And you said that we have been bought with a price and that we're no longer our own. Amen. That we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And so we say, come Holy Spirit. Do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Increase the intimacy of our relationship with Jesus, with you and with the Father. And cause us to, to go from one level of faith to the next with an ever-increasing, growing, developing, maturing faith of trusting you in the big stuff and in the little stuff. <clears throat> and for this we say thank you. Oh, yeah. thank, you. thank you. Forever, forever thankful. For all eternity, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. 
To receive more audio content from The Vineyard, click the subscribe button in iTunes.